you're about to enter into a new world of knowledge, curiosities, and high strangeness. This is a podcast of Straight Up Strange Productions. The waters rolled down in a volume apparently 20 feet high, sweeping across the railroad, canal, and river, thus filling the entire valley and rushing down with irresistible force, involving boats, buildings, bridges, and everything in its course in one common ruin. Among these were the Turnpike Bridge, a powerful structure across the school hill at the Reading Railroad Depot, the heavy iron railroad bridge just below, which was carried down the current at least two miles, and nine dwelling houses, together with the stone lockhouse number five. Passing downward, this immense torrent carried with it everything that came in its way. The substantial stone building owned and occupied by George Campbell on the new turnpike a short distance above the toll gate, one mile below Mount Carbon, was nearly demolished. The stone house at the toll gate shared a similar fate, and the large stone building just below the gate, owned and occupied by Benjamin Klein, was utterly obliterated, hardly a stone being left to mark the spot where but yesterday stood the Fraleysville Hotel. A mile or so below, the house, large new barn, and substantial sawmill of Mrs. Mary Minnick were all swept away, leaving not a vestige behind. In the house of Mrs. Minnick and the three previously named, the inmates barely had time to escape with their lives, without saving an article of furniture, their money, or anything else of value. Between Mount Carbon and Schoolkill Haven, a number of persons were drowned, but such has been the confusion everywhere as to render it impossible for us to obtain names. The wife of John Connor, watchman at the railroad bridge above the latter place, was among the number of victims. At Schoolkill Haven, the canal wharves or landings were swept away, and with them, some 6,000 tons of coal belonging to Messrs. Heckscher, Payne, and Moore, but principally to the former. The railroad bridge was injured somewhat, and great damage done in the lower part of town. We learned that Mr. Philip Boyer made a very narrow escape from drowning. While engaged on a pile of lumber and endeavoring to make it fast, it was carried away and he hurried down the current. The railroad bridge and canal dam, a short way below Schoolkill Haven, were carried away, and one or more of the railroad bridges below Landingville. A description of the rupture of the Tumbling Run Dam and the Flood of 1850, from the Evansburg Mountain Journal for September 12th of that year. This is episode 55, The Hex Cat of Tumbling Run. Matchin once wrote that strange things are lost and forgotten in obscure corners of the newspaper. Welcome to Forgotten Darkness, a podcast that will aim to prove that that statement is true. The Tumbling Run Valley, just south of Pottsville, Pennsylvania, in Schoolkill County, is a pleasant-looking area, 
A narrow valley between two mountain ridges, it's dominated by a large, mile-long reservoir of water created when a creek was dammed. This reservoir supplied water that was used in the Schuylkill Canal, one of the many canals that crisscrossed Pennsylvania back in the 19th and early 20th centuries. The lake was a favorite spot for boating, so boats lined the lake, as well as a hotel, and eventually a small amusement park. By 1914, three years after the following events, though, the park had closed, and by 1919, there was nothing left. Tumbling Run, however, was not the most uneventful area. It was somewhat prone to flooding, and in fact in 1850, one of the two dams broke, inundating the entire area with water, as described in the introduction. Murders, or suspicion of murders, surfaced fairly regularly from the parks in the area. The lake was also plagued by drownings, and a glance at the newspaper articles about the region displays a huge number of drownings. In fact, by 1912, swimming had been prohibited in the lake. It's also just over 10 miles south of Ringtown, where Susan Mummy was murdered by Albert Yashinsky, who believed her to be a witch, which I described in Episode 9. And like that one, this story involves a black cat. The association of cats and witches is an old one, going back to at least the Middle Ages, if not earlier. It's probably more common that cats appear as witches' familiars, but it's pretty common as well for them to be the witches themselves shape-changed. The Thomas family lived on a farm in the Tumbling Run Valley. On the farm lived 61-year-old Hal Thomas, his brother William, and Hal's unmarried daughter Mary Isabel, 35 at the time of this story. Hal was a veteran of the Civil War, having served in the 157th Pennsylvania Volunteers. I couldn't determine exactly what years he served, but it's likely he saw no direct combat, but was instead garrisoned at the now notorious Fort Delaware. Another daughter of Howell's, Elizabeth, had married a man named Albert Potts and moved to the nearby town of Orwigsburg. Howe and William were native of, natives of Pottsville, and at least Howe had formerly been a miner. Exactly who actually owned the farm seems to be somewhat in question. Some articles say how, others claim it was actually the property of his brother William. A black cat had at some point in 1910 appeared at the farm, and following this, misfortunes began to occur on the farm. After consulting a local powwow doctor, the Thomases were told that a witch from Orwigsburg had placed a curse on them, seeking to get their hands on the family's money. According to William, the black cat was the beginning of the, of the spell placed upon the Thomases. A hunt was mounted for the cat. Mary Isabel and her uncle William both armed themselves with 38 revolvers and prowled the grounds. It was Mary who first came across the cat and fired at it with her revolver. However, she swore, the cat was not killed, but grew immediately to four or five feet in length. Desperate to have the curse lifted, they began a tour of nearly all powwow practitioners in the area, and eventually came into contact with a man from California who claimed that he was able to lift the hex. The Thomases were paying a sum to this man, but while whatever he was doing seemed to alleviate the curse somewhat, still it was present. It was said that most mirrors broke as a result of the hex. Guns were silent when fired, Mary Isabel said. Crops began dying, 
and the, hen, and the hens began to crow like roosters, and the pigs to bark like dogs. Milk was discolored, and there were several car accidents in the vicinity. People routinely claimed to be thrown from their horses in the Tumbling Run, tumbling run Valley. On September 30th, Charles Campbell and two other railroad employees were sent to Cressona to check on some lights that had gone out. While passing Tumbling Run, a black object ran across the road. The horse froze and then began to climb the bank at the side of the road. The wagon carrying the three men overturned, spilling them to the ground, although none were seriously injured. Later, word was received that the lights in Cressona were lit once more. The same night, a man named Moyer bought a horse and was riding at home, when, once again near the valley, the horse threw him off and ran away. It was found the next day on a hillside. An illness suffered by Mary Thomas was also deemed to be because of the curse. It was said that the hex caused a band from Pottsville to be shunned. When they went to Lehighton on September 28th, people around town asked them if the, ha if the hex cat had been killed yet. They said that when they replied that it had not, townspeople stopped talking to them and would not let their children talk to them. William claimed that sulfurous fumes infiltrated the house on many occasions. He claimed that even if all windows and doors were closed and all cracks in the walls stopped up, they would still be rendered unconscious by the gaseous fumes. The fumes seemed to affect only the members of the family. He claimed that if outsiders sat in the house with the Thomases, only the Thomases would be affected by the gas. According to the Pottsville Republican for September 26th of that year, and speaking of the fumes, he stated that one could not tell from where it was coming, but every few minutes it would strike under the nose and, add it, and that it was so strong as to knock the victim to the floor. The same newspaper on September 22, 1911, described in vivid detail the condition of the farm after the progression of the curse. The farm was described as deplorable. The house was badly in need of repairs, while the animals or the cattle were half-starved looking. Situated near the homestead is as fine an orchard of apples that is to be found anywhere in this section of the county. Bushels of them were going to decay on the ground, and when asked why the apples were not gathered and disposed of, and the money used in the purchase of coal and the necessities of life, the family stated that the Orwigsburg Hex had so decreed that the apples were not to be taken from either the trees or the ground, and hence they were being allowed to decay, believing that in so doing, the hex would not be pleased, and in the course of time, remove the spell. Hal's health had been declining for some months, and at some point before the September 22nd article quoted above, he died of what was apparently a stroke, although his brother William was to later say that he knew that was not the real cause of death. Cemetery records seem to indicate, oddly, that he died on September 28th, which begs the question, then, of why there was an article indicating that he was dead a week before he actually died. I suppose the date could have actually reflected the day on which he was buried, which is still odd since the newspapers indicate that his funeral was on the 26th, and then he was still buried two days after his funeral. So as indicated there, his funeral was held on September 26th at Howe's Old Home at 301 North 3rd Street in Pottsville, and it was not without drama. It was revealed that the married sister, Elizabeth, was the person from Orwigsburg who was believed to have cursed, or at the very least hired a witch to have cursed, the Thomas Farm. 
These accusations were leveled by her sister when she blocked Elizabeth from entering the funeral. She allowed her sister's children to attend, however. When relatives began taking Mary upstairs so that her sister could come in and pay her respects to her father, she broke away from them and came back downstairs, yelling at Elizabeth and again ordering her to leave, before falling to the ground in a faint. She eventually acquiesced, and both sisters went to the cemetery. William spoke to reporters at the funeral, stating that, The demon has evidently determined to get the rest of the family, and in this, he may succeed. For the past two days, my niece has been in Pottsville, and everywhere she has walked, she has been followed by this unseen spirit. After the funeral was completed, Mary returned to Tumbling Run, but roomed with a neighbor rather than in the farmhouse. Her sister Elizabeth had offered room and board, but unsurprisingly, Mary refused. It was said that a conference of powwow doctors was held at the Thomas farm, and they had determined that the ineffectiveness of Mary's shooting of the hex cat was due to the bullet. They advised the family to melt down a $5 gold coin and make a golden bullet. The family had two gold bullets, and both Mary and her uncle William patrolled the property with 38 caliber revolvers, and one or the other of the two would shoot and kill the hex cat. But the cat could not be found. By September 29th, the grounds were being prowled by mobs of farmers and others, also toting shotguns, rifles, and whatever weapons they could find, as well as by Mary and William, who still sought the cat in vain. Hello, all you curious creatures out there. I'm Amber Ray. And I'm Andrew McKay. And we are the hosts of Into the Portal. If you like myths, legends, history with a paranormal twist, join us every week as we explore lesser-known mysteries of our world and beyond. You can find us on iTunes, Google Play Music, and all other major podcast platforms, and at intotheportal.com, your gateway to the bizarre. The only question is, do you dare peer into the portal? It was at this point said that the witch cat, which was being referred to as a hexameter cat, could only be effectively combated with another cat, a so-called hexahameron, or witch-eating cat. Effectiveness of a hexahameron cat was attested to by the Witch of Endor in the Sixth Book of Moses. One was soon found by powwow doctors in the town of Schoolkillhaven. This cat is said to have been born on the sixth day of the sixth month in 1906, and to have been one of a litter of six kittens. It was blind only six days after being born, whereas all ordinary cats are blind nine days. Some person wrote to the newspaper asking if it would not be advantageous to contact Professor H.A. Surface, who they called the state's chief detective and fellow of the microbe family. While it indeed was a real man, something I at first doubted, the man in question was actually an ornithologist, so I'm not certain why exactly the writer thought he could help with the hex affair. But as they later said that a quantity of soil from Ireland should be fired at the cat, alluding to the story of St. Patrick and the snakes as evidence that the very ground in Ireland was blessed and could help dispel the hex, I think it's safe to say that it was just a crank. On September 30th, a man named Kelleher 
manager of the Gately and Brennan Furniture Store in Pottsville, contacted the Pottsville Republican, which by this time had an editor assigned specially to Hexcat stories. The Hex had supposedly begun to afflict the newspaper offices as well, with horses refusing to feed and telephones not working. Even employees showing up late for work was attributed to the Hex. Anyway, Kelleher claimed that an employee of his named Charles Lawless was riding through the Tumbling Run Valley when he heard a moaning sound emanating from the area of a tree stump. He approached the stump and saw a pair of green eyes staring at him. Lawless threw a blanket over the animal and pulled out a black cat. A cage was constructed in the furniture store for the cat that Lawless had captured. When the editor visited the store, manager Kelleher removed the blanket from the box and the cat was not there. They searched the room where the cat had been stored and it eventually was located in the corner of the room. One employee was scratched by the cat as he returned it to its box and he promptly quit. As it was said in the Pottsville Republican on September 30th, how the cat got out of, it, out of the box is a mystery that can only be cleaned up by one gifted with a knowledge of the hexes. The cat is as black as the ace of spades. It is about medium size and weighs two or three pounds. With large yellow eyes the size of a 25 cent piece and a tail nearly two feet long, it presents a horrible sight. Its feet are nearly twice the size of an ordinary cat's, and when angry, its back comes up into the air and it is then ready to make the fur fly. It seemed almost impossible it could get through the slats on the box, as the body was about four inches in diameter and the space less than one and one half inches. With the aid of another blanket, the cat was again soon captured and placed in the box. It was no sooner in, and the slats renailed, and it started the second attempt to escape. To the observer, it appeared as though its body became oblong, or in other words grew to twice its normal length. The size of the head diminished until it appeared to be about three inches long and one inch in thickness. The cat then ran its tail up through the slats on the box, and twisting it around the one slat, started to pull itself up, the same as a monkey hanging by its tail. Another variant of the story seems to have been fairly common in the newspapers as well. In this, it was claimed that Charles Lawless was one of the band of farmers who were hunting on the property. He was armed with various protective talismans. It was claimed that his shotgun had been blessed, that he had on his person several quote-unquote hex books, likely including The Long Lost Friend, The Sixth Book of Moses, etc. And he was said to have captured the cat by stunning it by tossing a Bible at it. Although this story was quite widespread, the above accounts are from Pottsville and I'm sure they reflect the facts. Some accounts also state that when the cat disappeared from the box the first time, it was never recovered. Doubtless, Lawless's cat was just that, a regular cat. Probably one a bit odd-looking and seemingly malnourished, a four-inch body diameter seems rather small, but still a normal cat. So-called hex cat dances were being held by area clubs, and one at the Amphion Club in Pottsville was decorated with black cats. Various hex cat-related songs were written, and a performer called Madame Hex performed at the Pottsville Academy of Music. As is normal with such stories, the farm was a destination for local teenagers seeking a thrill, just as almost every supposedly haunted place is today. Several stores in the vicinity began selling stuffed hex cats. 
By October 6th, though, it was said that Mary had reconciled with her sister, Mrs. Potts, moved into her home, and soon after, she essentially disowned the entire Hexcat story. She regretted that it had gained such widespread pet press, and she said she no longer thought that the unfortunate events in the valley were the work of the cat. A few days later, despite Mary Isabel Thomas's condemnation of the story, T. Arthur Rowland, a real estate man from Allentown, wrote to the postmaster of Pottsville offering to kill the cat. If the people of Tumbling Run would like to have that hex cat slaughtered, they can send me the, com the car fare to come up there with and give me $25 when I kill the cat. I will agree to kill it, skin it, and have a cat made of the hide, he said. However, he also stipulated that the town people had to have this, have this particular cat captured or shut up where I can get at it. In other words, asking them to do most of the work. And while I don't know whether he was ever contacted, I'm guessing that he wasn't. By November, Mary must have been losing patience with the entire affair, because she wrote a letter to the Pottsville Republican. By this point, she was referred to as formerly of Tumbling Run, indicating that she no longer was staying at the farm. She was asking the public to stop the use of Hexcat in any business efforts or public amusements. She also said that the entire affair was a general misunderstanding and that it is the time that the whole thing now be dropped. I'm not certain what happened to Sour Mary on the story of the Hex, but I have my suspicions. The stories of the Hex Cat were soon after forgotten, and the story fell into relative obscurity. A month later, Percival Nagel of de Turkville, some miles southwest of Tumbling Run, likewise felt that his farm was hexed after 12 of his animals died and he was stricken ill. The case of the hex cat was mentioned in connection with the Nagel curse. Although the initial story of the hex was done, the story of the Thomas family was not. On June 15, 1916, William Thomas was arrested in Pottsville for attempting to set fire to a tenement building he owned on North 3rd Street. This would seem to be the same house where the funeral was held. He had lived in Pottsville ever since the end of the Hexcat affair. Earlier that day, he had been seen with a bottle in one of the houses, and neighbors noticed the smell of oil. They came into the house afterwards and discovered oil-soaked rags and newspapers on the floor. A makeshift trap was set for William by lining milk bottles up against the door, and when he attempted to gain access that night, the bottles fell and he was at that point arrested. Although he had $1,000 worth of insurance on the house, this would not have paid off the mortgage, so the attempted arson apparently had no financial motive. It was said that Mary Isabel tried to shoot herself when she learned that her uncle had been arrested. There's no more reference to her, but she didn't die until 1944. She's buried in Orwigsburg, along with her sister Elizabeth, who had also died in 1944. He had in his possession, when arrested, an old-fashioned pepper box revolver. These were used widely in the Civil War, so this might have been some souvenir of Howe's, and a silver bullet. He claimed that he was, quote, obsessed of an evil spirit, and that he had been haunted by this spirit in his dreams, and he, and he often slept in the open to ward the spirit off. It's never directly stated if this spirit was the hex cat, but it would seem to be a reasonable conclusion. William was sentenced to 90 days in jail, 
and was later acquitted on a lack of evidence that he actually intended to burn the houses. Two years later, a tumbling run farmer discovered William dead in a shack. He was frozen to death and had apparently been dead for a long while. William had apparently been resident here in this shack for quite some time, and as it was said that his peculiar manner of living brought him before the authorities on occasion. In the news reports of his death, William was referred to as the architect of the Hexcat story. I'd hazard a guess that that this was true, since it seems that after Mary Isabel broke away from William, she lost her belief in the Hex. It seems that it might be possible that William may have gained the delusion about the Hex, and that Mary Isabel eventually came to believe it as well, in the manner of shared psychological delusions. When she moved in with her sister, the source of the delusion, William, was removed, and she came to see things more realistically. That would be my guess, anyway. And that's the end of this episode. As always, a list of sources consulted for this episode can be found in the show description, and photos associated with this week's story will be on my Instagram at Forgotten Darkness. If you have a question, a comment, or if you know a lesser-known story that you'd like to see covered, leave a comment on the podcast page, post it to the Facebook page at Forgotten Darkness Podcast, or send it to the e- to our email at ForgottenDarkness77 at gmail.com. I'm also on Twitter at Forgotten Darkness Podcast, and you can DM me ideas there. I also now have a Patreon at patreon.com slash forkdark. That's F-O-R-G-D-A-R-K. Until next time, this is Andrew signing off. Discover more shows like this one at straightupstrange.com.